0: Hi, this is Ananda, president of the Hare Krishna community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk.
1: My talk the two kinds of oneness came about uh, as a result of a conversation I had with one of my instructing gurus, Ravindra Saru Prabhu. I was speaking to him some time back about the challenge of being a yoga teacher and teaching bhakti yoga as we understand it uh, from Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, how so many people in the yoga community have heard about the idea of the oneness of being, even if they hadn't heard much about where that idea comes from and how it developed. Um, and most devotees uh, engaged in the practice of Krishna consciousness, uh, at least at that time, you know, were not really involved with people from the yoga community very much, and they didn't really know much about what... People were thinking uh, in terms of this and uh, even bhakti yogis are not all that familiar with where the conception of absolute oneness comes from because that's just not part of our teaching so as I was speaking to Ravindra Saruprabhu about this uh, I asked him what I should do and he said well you ought to tell him that there's two kinds of oneness So before I speak about the two kinds of oneness, let's do an exercise in the one kind of oneness. What I'd like you to do is look across the room and focus on someone who is not looking right back at you. Because that would be awkward, you know. I mean so so go ahead and look look, look across the room to somebody far away who's not looking right back at you. And then once you've found someone to look at. Try to imagine that there is no difference of any kind between you and the person you're looking at. That the person you're looking at, you are them, and they are you, and there is no me and them. Just give it a shot. Try to access that experience of being one consciousness without any individuality. Okay, now look back at me. It's a little challenging, right? I mean, conceptually, you know, theoretically, that that sounds like something, but it's hard to actually do. It's hard to actually have that experience. So our temple is a center for learning uh, and practicing uh, bhakti yoga, union with Radha and Krishna through the medium of devotional service. And the elements of a bhakti yoga practice... Uh, mantra meditation, some of you were here chanting japa earlier, the communal call and response, chanting with musical instruments, you were here for the kirtan perhaps, the ritualized offerings on the altar, the arti ceremony, you know, they're relatively simple and easy to learn and you can feel the effects of these practices very, very quickly if you integrate them into your life. Um, it's a very, very powerful process. So Why is it so powerful? Because, or at least one reason, is that bhakti yoga is the art and science of spiritual relationships. Relationships are actually a central part of how we define ourselves as individuals. A little paradoxical, but that's a fact. To be a person means to be in relationship with other people. So what's so special about a spiritual relationship then? Well, To have a spiritual relationship means to define oneself as a spiritual person, which means that you're now integrating the attributes of eternality, because spirit is eternal, knowledge or full cognition, understanding of the true nature of oneself and and one's relationships, and perpetual bliss, ananda, as opposed to something that's temporary, something that is subject to illusion, the misidentification of the self as the not-self, and the influence of time. Because in material consciousness and in the material world, all relationships come to an end, which is hardly the stuff of perpetual bliss. Sometimes we hear Bhakti Yoga described in another way as the path to experiencing uh, the oneness of being by surrendering to the divine as one's inner self. And this isn't wrong insofar as there is a oneness of being to be experienced. Uh, we all share the same quality of being spiritual beings. Aham brahmasmi is uh, a Sanskrit aphorism from the Chandogya Upanishad, which means I am Brahman. It speaks to our shared spiritual nature. And... There is a divine inner self who is a singular omniscient person situated in the heart of every other person. But uh, there are some questions that arise when we look at this idea of oneness closely uh, as a way of thinking about spiritual life. For one thing, if we're ultimately one being who's the divinity uh, within, then who's the person who's thinking that they are the divinity within, rather than the not divinity without. Uh, And that question reveals that there's a two-ness that keeps sneaking into oneness whenever we try to explain it. For example, when we say we can experience the oneness of being by surrendering to the divine as one's inner self, uh, we're suggesting that there is an outer self, whom we currently think of as us, and there's an inner self that we think of as being divine. And so right away, we have a conception of non-duality that's based on a duality, an outer self and an inner self. So the persistence of twoness shows up. The premise of oneness is consistently kind of compromised by this idea of twoness. So uh, while the idea of oneness isn't technically wrong, uh, there seems to be something missing because there's an internal contradiction that requires 2 to consistently show up every time you try to explain oneness. So what I want to share with you today is uh, how this persistent two-ness can be explained when we consider that there are two kinds of oneness, namely qualitative oneness and quantitative oneness. Absolute oneness proposes that there's no distinction between quality and quantity because there's supposedly nothing but oneness, you can't have two things. Even though twoness keeps popping up uh, whenever you try to explain it. When we make this distinction between quality and quantity, then we can see how two can become one and one can be two all at the same time. So here's how. Let's begin by looking at the interdependent relationship between energy and the source of energy. So energy is the quality that defines something that's energetic. For example, sunshine is the energy that is the defining characteristic of the Sun, the energetic source. So here's how the Sun transforms nuclear mass into radiant energy. All right, you got this? Any questions about this? We're good to go? Okay. Here's a cool thing that happens when the sun engages in the act of nuclear fusion. The shine that the sun produces appears simultaneously as a wave and a particle. And whether it looks like a wave or a particle just depends on which way you're looking at it. So these are two different things, a wave and a particle. But somehow or other, they're one thing. So nature provides us with a very nice demonstration of how it is possible to have simultaneous oneness and difference. Similarly, the energetic source of sunshine, the sun, uh, and its energy, the sunshine, are two different things. Except they're not. They're actually one thing. Because you can't have one without the other. If you take away the energetic source, the sun, you're not going to have any sunshine, obviously. The sunshine disappears without the sun. And since the shine is the defining characteristic of the sun, if you take the shine away, then the sun loses its meaning. It's no longer the sun. So the sun is not the sun without the sunshine, and the sunshine cannot exist without the sun. they are two different things but they're also one thing, simultaneously one and different. So looking at this yet another way, the sun and the sunshine are qualitatively one because they share the same essential qualities of heat and light. But quantitatively, the sun and the sunshine are different because there are innumerable particles, waves, if you would prefer to look at them that way, of sunshine. But there's only one sun. So the sun and the sunshine are qualitatively one, but quantitatively different. Similarly, there's one supreme self within the hearts of all individual selves, but there are innumerable individual selves whose hearts the one Supreme Self is in. And this also suggests a qualitative oneness and a quantitative difference because the innumerable individual selves and the Supreme Self share the same spiritual nature, qualitatively one, but there's only one Supreme Self and therefore there's a quantitative difference between the innumerable spiritual selves, you and I, and the one Supreme Self. So this is how we can understand simultaneous oneness and difference when we posit two kinds of oneness. So now we can ask ourselves two questions. First, do we really think that our experience of individual consciousness is an illusion? Uh, That beyond the oneness of our shared humanity or feeling kinship, with one another, or all sentient beings, uh, beyond unity in a common cause, that we are, are we literally the all-pervading and omniscient being that we currently do not experience ourselves as being? Then the second question is, is our oneness found, uh, or rather, to follow that, is our oneness to be found in a shared spiritual nature as emanations from the same spiritual source? Is this what we mean by oneness? Then the second question is How can we coherently explain the existence of the world? Does it really exist? Or is it just an illusory superimposition that doesn't really exist? Here we have a world with a multiplicity of beings and infinite variety of things. Is it real? or not. The Vedas are the original books of knowledge, and in our tradition we understand them to be of divine origin. And The Upanishads are the philosophical conclusion of the Vedas, and the Vedanta Sutras, codified instructions about the ultimate conclusion of knowledge, provide a summary of the philosophical conclusion of the Upanishads, as does the Bhagavad Gita, but in conversational rather than codified form. So according to the Vedanta Sutras, the material world comes into being as a result of a transformation of energy. Just as the sun transforms nuclear mass into heat and light without being transformed itself, the Vedanta Sutras describe Brahman, the ultimate reality, as having inconceivable energies that can be transformed while Brahman, the source of the energy, remains unchanged by such transformations. So Krishna describes his various energies and how he is the unifying source of these energies in the Bhagavad Gita in the seventh chapter, where he says, Earth, water, fire, air, ether, the mind, the intellect, and the false ego constitute the eightfold division of my separated material energy besides this inferior energy almighty armed one know that I have another superior energy which comprise the living beings who animate the world thus you should understand that these two energies are the source of all beings and that I am the origin and the dissolution of the entire cosmos. Now, with such specific references to varieties of energies and a unifying energetic source, you may wonder, uh, where does the idea of undifferentiated oneness appear in the Vedic tradition? How does this come about? The founder of the school of absolute non-dualism, known as Advaita Vedanta, is Shankara, and he introduces this into the Vedic tradition somewhere around between 788 and 820 of the common era. So his absolute non-dualism, the doctrine of Advaita Vedanta, uh, often simply referred to as Vedanta, uh, proposes that Atman, individual consciousness, and Brahman, universal consciousness, are ultimately one. The ultimate goal of Shankara's system is to be liberated from the illusion of individual consciousness and merge into the reality of universal consciousness. Now, this actually reflects a very advanced level of spiritual understanding. To see the Brahma Jyoti is pretty advanced stuff. Um, But it presents us with some philosophical questions, such as, if our individuality is an illusion, then what's preventing the experience of oneness? If my individuality is real, then how is it that we are all one? Does attaining liberation mean I will cease to be a person? So this philosophy is understood to be impersonalism or nirvishesha. Shankara's philosophy is a response to uh, the teaching uh, that uh, that we find in Buddhism, which precedes Shankara's appearance, uh, and which is now popular with postmodern philosophy and neuroscience, and it proposes that we experience ourselves as socially constructed or psychologically constructed selves, that rational analysis w- should lead one to conclude that the I who witnesses the socially constructed self is actually empty. So here, Atman is denied as having any standing in reality whatsoever. Uh, the uh, speculative metaphysics of neuroscience are uh, really into this kind of idea, suggesting that human psychology is just an autonomic mean machine that has no one at the controls. Essentially, it says, we are all none. So let's do an exercise in nonness. We've done an exercise in oneness. Now we're going to do an exercise in noneness. Okay? Once again, look across the room to someone who's not looking at you, so you don't have that awkward we're looking at each other feeling. And then once you've focused on someone, try to understand that the person you are looking at does not exist. And that you, the person who is looking, also do not exist. Okay, now look back at me. So now that's even more challenging, right? So while the logic of emptiness uh, may usher in the realization that we are not who we appear to be, because that's part of our philosophy, that we have misidentified our spiritual selves as this material mind and body. That's part of our philosophy. But um, it may leave our hearts feeling empty, because if there's no self, then that means our feelings are not real. Attaining enlightenment means that we'll cease to exist. This is voidism, which in Sanskrit is Shunyavadi. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, of which we are Part appears in 1486 and spent the t- first 24 years of his life in Navadweep in Bengal, India, where he quickly established himself as an academic prodigy, an exuberant exponent of devotional philosophy, and he established a synthesis of non duality and duality called uh, Chintya Beda Beda Tattva, inconceivable simultaneous oneness and difference. The oneness is qualitative. The difference is quantitative, hence personalism, because it supports a conception of individual personality on a spiritual level. So the science of bhakti yoga, as presented by Sri Chaitanya, provides us with a sound and complete philosophy that systematically quantifies an authentic spiritual experience of both oneness with divinity, in terms of our potential, for engaging in spiritual relationships because we exist as spiritual individuals. So Sri Chaitanya was the fearless leader of a social reform movement that democratized the spiritual culture of his time by popularizing nam sankirtan, the congregational chanting of the holy names of the Lord in public uh, with musical accompaniment. And Sri Chaitanya uh, initiated this practice that we now know as kirtan. Sri Chaitanya's practice of Nam Sankirtan drew very large and enthusiastic crowds, but his philosophy was not readily accepted by the cognoscenti, the intellectuals of his society, uh, which was led by renunciates, sannyasis, uh, who subscribed to Shankara's philosophy of Advaita Vedanta. So, seeing that the significance of his philosophy would be missed by the intellectual classes without the social imprint of the sannyasis, Sri Chaitanya did the most expedient thing. He became a sannyasi. And upon taking the vows of sannyas and thus entering into the renounced order of life, Sri Chaitanya uh, made his headquarters in Puri, but traveled for the first uh, six years after that all over India. And during one such journey to Varanasi, Sri Chaitanya was invited to a gathering of sannyasis And even though Chaitanya was a sannyasi himself, he had up to then avoided the association of Vedantist uh, because what was expected of Vedanta sannyasis was the rigorous cloistered study of Vedanta and Sri Chaitanya preferred to go out and chant and dance. Now, the... Vedanta sannyasis knew of Sri Chaitanya's scholarly reputation. They recognized his elevated spiritual position, so they were confused by his behavior. So the leader of the Vedanta sannyasis asked him, why do you prefer public displays of religious uh, fervor, uh, a lower class kind of popular religion, uh, to the higher class practice of reflective study, specifically the study of Vedanta through Shankara's non-dualistic commentaries and in response, Sri Chaitanya replied, this is from the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the Lord is like a great blazing fire and the living entities are like small sparks of that fire. The living entities are energies, not the energetic. The energetic is Krishna. This is very vividly described in the Bhagavad Gita, the Vishnu Purana, and other Vedic literatures. Shankara's philosophy has taken the insignificant living entities to be the Lord, the supreme truth, thus covering the glory and supremacy of the absolute truth. The supreme personality of Godhead is opulent in all respects. Transformation of energy is a proven fact. It is the false bodily conception of the self that is a delusion. Therefore, by his inconceivable energies, he has transformed the material cosmic manifestation. So to understand Sri Chaitanya's critique of Shankara's philosophy, we have to take a quick look at what that philosophy says. The Vedanta Sutras define Brahman as the source of everything, as having the quality of joyfulness, as being categorically different from Atman, you and I. Uh, And by contrast, Shankara proposes that everything is an illusory superimposition on Brahman. That Brahman has no qualities and that Atman is identical to Brahman. So in Shankara's view, the doctrine of transformation of energies must be wrong. Because if it were true, Brahman would undergo a change. And if Brahman is changeless and creation requires change, then Brahman can't be the source of creation. And if nothing exists other than Brahman, then the world of our experience must not exist. So then you have this problem of well, how do you explain our experience of the world? So Shankar considered this problem and addressed it in his commentary by conceptualizing a two tiered system of reality. The higher level of reality is called Nirguna. Brahman or no qualities, reality without any qualities and the higher level of Brahman has no name, no form, no qualities, no activities, no attributes of any kind. So from a conceptual standpoint, Nirguna Brahman is really not that different from the voidism of Buddhist philosophy. The lower level of reality is called Saguna Brahman, reality with qualities, and this lower Brahman is deemed to be a position of ignorance, a state of illusion where we experience an observable world with names, forms, qualities, activities, relationships. But these activities actually have no factual existence. To be in a state of knowledge means to experience the undifferentiated unity of Brahman, and to be in a state of ignorance is to experience the world of names, forms, qualities, etc., so, Shankara's explanation uh, requires that we have two possible states of being knowledge and ignorance. Once again, the persistence of two-ness creeps into an explanation of oneness. So, if we accept this two-tiered system, just for the sake of argument, uh, then it's reasonable to ask: what is the relationship? between Brahman, Nirguna Brahman, and Saguna Brahman? And the answer is, there's no relationship. There can't be a relationship, because uh, if absolute oneness is true, then Brahman has no energies that can be transformed into a material world. So from a position of knowledge, there's no world to relate to. The material world doesn't exist, nor does it even appear to exist. From a position of ignorance, when you try to look at Brahman, all you're going to see is representations of Brahman in form, name, qualities, etc. And somehow these representations, even though they exist in the realm of ignorance and are composed of ignorance, have no real existence, uh, somehow they will purify one's consciousness to the point of being able to cross the gap between ignorance and knowledge, except that there's a problem because the person who's in pursuit of knowledge doesn't really exist. And if you don't exist, then you can't really go anywhere, can you? Anyone ever seen nothing go somewhere? I have not. So what we're left is nothing. And philosophically speaking, that's a problem. Uh, It isn't wrong, because everything is Brahman. But it's not complete, because it doesn't offer a coherent explanation of the existence of the world. Sri Chaitanya's philosophy of simultaneous oneness and difference reconnects spirit and matter uh, with a direct reading of Vedanta that accepts the inconceivable potency of the Supreme Person and thus provides a coherent explanation as to how the energy of the Lord and the Lord himself are one and different simultaneously. So what? Who cares? Why does it matter? We would all like to be happy that is actually another kind of oneness. We share the desire for happiness. So that's the result we want from whatever it is we're doing. Our results uh, are in part uh, uh, driven by our actions. Actions are one factor that contribute to the results we get and our actions are determined by our attitude and our philosophy determines what our attitude is. So let's consider some varieties of uh, what has taken place here. From the standpoint of oneness, at its best, it gives us a sense of unity. At its worst, it undermines the possibility of relationships because there's no other. Uh, At its best, we act on the basis of shared interests, but at its worst, it can lead to an indifference to the world. It's actually just an illusion. And the result, at its best, is a positive engagement with the world. Ironically, at its worst, it's a disengagement from the world. From the position of voidism, at its best, somehow or other, we find Buddhist teachers speak quite a bit about compassion. And at its worst, it's depressing because nothing exists. So our actions are either kindness to all or an even deeper kind of materialism because that seems to be all there is. And the result is either a contribution to a better material world. At its worst, you don't have a reason to live. The philosophy that we are all the supreme person in the heart of all beings, well, at its best, it generates mutual respect. Uh, At its worst, it's like it's all good. Everything becomes the leela, the pastimes of the Lord that we're engaging in. And so we are either seriously engaged in the pursuit of self-realization, which is a good thing, or we end up just being in pursuit of our material desires as part of our leela. We are all individual parts of a personal complete whole, according to the philosophy of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, which lends us uh, an attitude of humility since we are infinitesimal and Radha and Krishna are infinite. And that results in service motivated by love uh, and then spiritual relationship with Radha and Krishna. So bhakti yoga is the art and science of spiritual relationships that reconciles our oneness and our difference. We have a microphone, uh, and that is attached to the hand of a, that is attached to an arm that is attached to a body of a spirit soul walking around the room. And uh, if you have any questions or comments about what I have shared with you today, uh, we have uh, right back there. I saw a hand go up. We'll start on
0: the lady side today. This is very loud. Could you bring it down a bit?
1: That's that's better. Hare Krishna. Um, thank you so much for your talk. Um, as you mentioned um, in the beginning, ideas of oneness are very popular in the yoga community. Um, and I think the popular perception of yoga philosophy is sort of this impersonal oneness. Um, is there any way that we can sort of break through that? Um, um, I know that, you know, the proclamation of Sri Chaitanya's mission is everywhere. Um, but, yeah, how do, we, how do we sort of deal with that? The, the greater, question. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. So here's one way to do that. In the course of uh, conversation, uh, for one thing, the first rule is um, be sweet, be nice. When Lord Chaitanya was speaking with the uh, Vedanta sannyasis and Varanasi, the first thing he did was offer them respect. He was very, very humble. Humble, And so the sannyasis reciprocated with his sweetness. He spoke with sweet words. So that's the first thing. Be friends. Uh, acknowledging that being on a spiritual path uh, of any kind is a million times greater than just being a materialist who ignores spiritual stuff. Then in the course of conversation, Uh, you can ask a question. You ask them, well, explain your philosophy. That's the first thing, Uh, the second thing. And then you may find out that they don't actually understand their own philosophy Uh, because most people don't because they don't actually think it through all the way to its logical conclusion. Uh, And then you can encourage them to inquire further as to how this idea is true. And then if you get to the point where they are convinced that... uh, there is only Brahman in the case of a Vedantist. Uh, if you get to, to the point where someone is convinced that ultimately we are all literally one and individuality is an illusion, then you can ask the question, well, whose illusion is it? Because if the whole idea of being an individual person is a product of an illusion, then it can't be me. I'm not having an illusion. I'm a, I'm a product of illusion. Well, what's left? Brahman. Well, Brahman can't be under the influence of illusion because Brahman, by definition, is beyond the reach of illusion. What's left? Okay, get back to me when you figure that out. All right. So that's, that's how you can deal with it in a really um, respectful, sweet, and thoughtful way and encourage people for deep to engage in deeper inquiry. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, Over here.
0: Well, this young man had his hand up first, and then I'll come back to you afterwards, okay? Okay. Um, Hare Krishna Prabhu. Um, For one thing, I've got a comment on what you just said,
2: and I've also got a question. Well, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says
1: that Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, so He could be the one. I mean, because in the Bhagavad Gita, He also says that He's in everybody and in everything. So that can... So basically, I think
0: that that's how it works no I don't know how to to, um, explain it properly I don't know how to explain it properly though we think you did you really helped us thank you that was really good okay
1: um, these are are pretty deep ideas uh, and so I think you articulated that exceptionally well
0: yeah he is the one
1: okay Another question? Um,
0: just a quick, uh, I'd I, I like to go ladies, men, ladies, side men. So ladies, any question on this side before we go back to the other side? Mm-hmm. Wait, i ask you to wait a little, Keshav. We'll get back to you in a moment. Okay. Um, the gentleman next to you, and then we'll come to you.
2: Hare Krishna. So uh, Bhagavad Gita, uh, Lord Krishna mentions a lot of uh, Shlokas from
1: Upanishad.
2: Yes. And Upanishad are the the Vedanta. End of the uh, Veda is Vedanta. And if Lord Krishna has quoted Upanishads, and also at the end of the chapter, it says uh, this Samvade Upanishad something, uh, Sampurna. So Bhagavad Gita itself, it is a Vedanta. So Lord Chaitanya focused more on the, the Bhakti or Sankirtan. This is my understanding, by the way. But the Lord Chaitanya focused on the Bhakti Yoga because for common people, ordinary people, it's difficult to... Understand that. Tattva must see your Om Tat Sat. Even the Om Tat Sat is mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, one of the slokas. So that Tat is the, the truth. It's difficult to grasp, just like what you mentioned about the dualism. Dualism, it's, it's difficult to conceive that I see you, but I cannot see you but what i think it mentions that you need to see beyond the nama and rupa everything in the world or a thing has name and form what the vedanta i started listening to vedanta more i'm more like a dualism a question, the, it, it, the it, question you is have a or the question is how do you the, the brahman uh, is the one and the things, we have Brahman inside. So beyond seeing you as a person, we need to see the Brahman in you. That, that's what the oneness is, So, so any, okay. that's what I understand.
1: Okay, so it's a, it's a fairly popular idea amongst Vedantists uh, that Vedanta, the understanding that there is nothing other than Brahman is for smart people And bhakti yoga, sentimental yoga, where you see name and form, is for people who are uh, ordinary people, not so bright. Um, (laughs) Us, in other words, yes. Um, And Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu rejects this idea. Uh, For for starters, uh, he tells in the same conversation with the uh, Vedantis of Varanasi, he rejects the idea that tat tvam asi, I uh, am that or you are that, um, meaning I am Brahman, uh, another way of saying aham brahmasmi. Uh, he rejects the idea that tat tvam asi from the Upanishads is the mahavakya or the key phrase and that rather omkara is the key phrase that one should uh, focus on. Uh, now, The other thing that we don't find in Advaita or absolute uh, non-dualistic Vedanta um, is a distinction between spiritual material form and spiritual form. The assumption is that if it's got a form, a name, quality, an activity, it's material. Whereas we make a distinction between material form and spiritual form and Krishna when he speaks about himself he says I am the ultimate object of Vedanta I me Krishna he never says the Brahman within me or the Brahman beyond me he says I am the basis of Brahman and one who uh, understands the transcendental nature of my appearance and activities understands things as they are and will not be obliged to hang out in the world of material form but rather ascends to the level of spiritual relationship with me which requires that one be a person, that one be be, be an individual. So to be a person means to have senses, to engage in relationships with other people which requires that there be an environment for these spiritual relationships to happen. So when the Bhagavad Gita describes the material world, it's described as an upside down and backwards reflection of the spiritual world. If it's here, it must be there. Because you cannot give what you do not have. And Vedanta uh, proposes that something uh, with no name, form, quality, or pastimes exists but not in relationship to the thing that we experience, the world of name, form, qualities, and pastimes whereas the Vedanta sutras themselves, as opposed to Shankara, begins with now try to understand Brahman, that from which everything appears. Therefore, Brahman must also have name, form, qualities, activities, because name, form, quality, and activities are in the category of everything. Is that clear? We're running short on time, so I just want to know if we have. Somebody time to said worry. no, and it's
0: true. It's such a fascinating topic, and also, you really have to.
1: I'll be happy to stick get your head if around anything it. Anything that I said needs further. Oh,
0: we have, to, um, it's, we have one minute left, and we have hands up. Um, is everybody happy to go on for a few more minutes on this topic? Yeah. Okay. Good. One, and then maybe.
3: I want to say something very briefly, um, an illuminating uh, analogy, which Srila Prabhupada was very fond of to help us understand this subject matter because we can approach this idea from very detailed philosophical arguments and logical progressions, um, or we can approach it by analogies. And sometimes analogies are very helpful for us. Um, Radhan, this young man, said, Krishna is the one who is in everyone's heart. And it's very correct. And in order to illustrate that, Srila Prabhupada used to give an analogy. That in everyone's heart, in every living being, human beings, insects, doesn't matter, there are actually two persons. Not one person. There are two persons. They are both of the same spiritual quality, right? They're both eternally transcendental Brahman. But one is the supreme personality of Godhead. And another one is the tiny individual soul. And the analogy that he gives is that it's just like you have a tree. And the tree is green. And in the tree, there are two green parrots. But the activities of these two birds are different. One is a very powerful supreme being. And he's watching everything that the other bird is doing. The other bird is the small, tiny living entity, and he's busy trying to eat all the fruits that are in the tree. And the, the big bird, the powerful bird, is simply waiting. When will this small bird turn to me? When will he give up trying to eat all the fruits of the tree? And when will he enter into a relationship with me? So that is the helpful analogy for understanding simultaneous oneness and difference. Also, Hari Krishna.
0: Okay, brief, quick question, quick answer.
2: Okay, Hari Krishna. Arivoo. So you are saying that um, that the difference between ourselves and the Lord is uh, quantity, right? Yes. We are but sparks of his flame. But if this is true, then what is the difference between me and you?
1: You're one spark and I'm another.
2: But are we of the same quantity?
1: Uh, Yes. Uh, One quarter of an angstrom unit. (laughs) Which is what you get if you divide a human hair up 10,000 times. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for asking the question. I always get really enlivened when our young folks ask the question. gonna I'm going to have you ask him um, personally right now after the talk is over. Um, lots to think about, lots to digest. Very, very important that we get our head around this because it is um, basically uh, 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 the line that a lot of people land on in many religions, uh, even monotheistic religions, we tend to take shelter of that. So, uh thank you to Hari Kirtan Prabhu. Please